Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the globes to the champions internationally. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the first serve. It is your home of tennis. We're back for another week. You can always uh, get involved too tonight. One 736 736 or on the text 0433 And tonight, I'm just going to make Tomo uh, maybe work a little bit back in the studio because I've got, thanks to our value partner, Latour, a nice little clothing prize pack, flamboyant gear. I'll tell you, you'll stand out in the tennis court, shirts, socks, Shorts, the whole prize pack coming your way. Check out LatourTennis.com. You can get involved tonight. Give us a call. Plenty bubbling around in the world of tennis. Uh, Brett Phillips is my name, and I'm always joined by the man who rocketed the fastest serve in the history of the game, 263 clicks, the 2015 Newcomb medalist, Sam Groth. We're not alongside each other, but I can just feel him looking over my shoulder. Grothy, good to have you BP, on board. Good to be here. Had you a bit worried there. I was having a few technical issues with my uh, the camera so we can see each other. I accidentally logged myself out about 30 seconds before we started the show. I could hear the panic in your voice. Where is he? Where is he? I'm here, mate. Don't worry. I've made it. Very nice to have you here, Samuel. Uh, we're getting sort of used to this, aren't we? I don't know. We, I mean, eventually we're going to get back to the SCN studios, which would be uh, nice because we uh, we want to be inside the building and be face-to-face, but this has become uh, the norm. It's become easy, hasn't it, really? I don't know, though. I'm looking forward to Wednesday getting a little bit of normality back. I'm down at the uh, or my wife's oh. family's beach house. It's been sitting yes. empty for a few months. There was a few odds and ends that needed to be done around the place, so we put our hand up and... Yeah, sneakily, just uh, hearing that the golf courses are going to open may have convinced my wife to come down here, and now she knows from Wednesday she might not see me too often. So you're teeing off with Sam Newman, is that right? (laughs) No, no, I wasn't a part of Sam Newman's crusade, mate. But I am happy that we're going to get some sort of normality back. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'm looking forward to inviting that contingent of five over uh, this week because uh, been in isolation for a little while. I've been cooking for myself, but it'd be nice to have a few people over. I can just show off my... uh, Improved uh, cooking skills, I've got to say. Um, turning into Gabrielle Gattay the last uh, eight weeks, uh, Grothy. But John Millman on Twitter over the weekend, I just noticed this. I mean, he's, geez, a bit of Johnny around, isn't he? We love John. He's a great fellow, so engaging. He'd be great on the player council. He's going to have a role like you, I think, post-tennis in the media in some way, shape or form, and in tennis in general. I looked at this tweet, watching a documentary on Liverpool's come-from-behind win in the 2005 Champions League final. Some people left at half-time. What type of people leave sport early? I just wanted to throw that out to the listeners, because tennis can be a difficult one in that regard. We always often you know, look at the night sessions at the Australian Open, if the first match goes for a little while, it means the second 
match, which normally was always the men, and now it's a bit of a mixture of the men and the women going first during the night session. Well, that would certainly go you know, well beyond what people are probably prepared to stay at the tennis floor. They'd probably love to stay till 2am, but they've got to work the next day. Is there a tennis match that you've left early that has turned into an epic? Now, we think back to, you know, Hewitt Bagdadis. I don't know how many were left that night at 4.33 in the morning. Nadal Djokovic, that six-hour epic final, Grothy. But I can say, as an old Fitzroy supporter, I never left. There's two things I could never understand. I could never understand people getting to the footy about 15 minutes into the first quarter, and leaving early. I mean, you get there, you soak in the atmosphere, watch the game. You might be uh, 10 goals down at halftime, but you stick it out, Samuel. No, you never leave. I'm I'm a big advocate for getting to the game. I get so frustrated if I'm late to the footy for some reason. I'm never, ever bailing out, I tell you. I think about tennis matches. I think back to one of my personal memories. It wasn't two sets to love down. It was two rubbers down in Darwin. I think there would have been a few people that weekend who were questioning why they made the trip to the Northern Territory to watch Australia lose to <laughs> Kazakhstan, I tell you. Yes, exactly right. And I tell you what, those who stuck around on the Sunday... Oh, what a performance they oh, were dealt. Just go to the Grothy Highlights reel. It was just unbelievable. Fist pumps everywhere. Speaking of fist pumps, this is a nice little segue. Now, we haven't got any tennis going on on the ATP or the WTA Tour, and certainly the Doomsdays are thinking it's it just it's gone. It's not going to happen this year. But we'll touch on a few interesting developments regarding the US Open and the French Open. But the UTR Pro Match Series, Grothy, that was broadcast on the Tennis Channel over the weekend. little private home in West Palm Beach there in Florida. And I think it had you know, four players. There was big Riley Opelka. He took it out. Herbert Herkash. Mimor Kekmanovic and Tommy Paul. Now, I just want you to compare atmospheres here, Samuel. This was how it went down. Now, if there's no crowds in tennis for the foreseeable future, this is how a big tournament win is going to sound like. First tournament of the new normal is in the books, and Riley Opelka is your champion. Well, he looked like the best player all day yesterday. A little worse for wear today, but came out like a champion. So two days of tennis, four matches. Riley Opelka goes three and one. And Prakash, you would have to say, as he does the racket tap of congratulations to his opponent, Riley Opelka is the reigning king of Palm Beach County. He wins Delray Beach on the regular tour in February and now wins... This one in West Palm. I think there's no Samuel, what, doubting what it. about the atmosphere? Just oh, it's pumping. massive, isn't it? It's just, it's just the moment you dream of when you want to be a professional athlete to play in front of a raucous crowd like that. But, I mean, to be honest, I think the players are probably grateful they've got a little bit of tennis, and I think the fans have the same. And you know, hopefully we're pushing towards some sort of a domestic competition here that might be broadcast in, yep. in some capacity so people and the players here. So it's not just the fans, but so the players actually get back out on court because... Obviously, we heard Craig Tolley also speak this week about um, how they're trying to put together an Australian Open and what that might look like. But yeah, mm. you can imagine, could you imagine an Australian Open final where that's that's the completion? It might be up to the, uh, the people in our job to make it sound a little bit better. So Sam, here's what we're missing. I'm going to go all the way back to 1991. Jimmy Connors, the great Jimmy Connors, on his last legs, he's 39 years of age, quarterfinal, Flushing Meadows, Arthur Ashe Stadium, no roof obviously back then. He's taking on Paul Hahus, the Dutchman. It is classic Jimmy. Just picture this, folks. He's on the defensive. He's at the back of the court. He's uh, managed to survive uh, two put-away smashes. He's put up a couple of lobs. The crowd is at fever pitch. Over to Flushing Meadows. Let's go.
so well at this point. He gets a couple of those lobs back, way up in the air. Then he finally sees his opening. He drives the forehand cross court. Watch it now in the full run. Connors up the line. He catches now, up. That is, you know, goosebump stuff, Grothy. I mean, I watched that about five times on YouTube today. Jimmy Connors has got people on their feet, I reckon, for two minutes with a standing ovation. That's the atmosphere we want back. Because if we have no fans for the next 12 months, we're going to get a fairly deadpan reaction from the commentators. You know what they're going to need to do? They're going to need to do like they do in those US sitcoms where they uh, hit the applause, you know, the, the, in, <laughs> the fake applause when someone wins a point or something happens, I reckon. Oh, goodness me. Jimmy Connors, absolutely outstanding. That US Open. Hey, Daniel's just sent us a text 0433981116. Now, I think everyone who loves their sport is, has been watching The Last Dance, the, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls documentary. Brilliant. A couple more episodes dropping today. Uh, the test, which I haven't watched, I've got to get hold of that on uh, Amazon. But Daniel's sort of posing the question, uh, Grothy, can, you know, can tennis maybe uh, look at something like this? I think we sort of maybe briefly mentioned it last week or the week before. I mean, I think there'd be a great documentary now that I'm into Netflix. I love Netflix. Yeah. I've been I staying agree. up well past my bedtime. But tennis could produce some great content for something it would. like this. I guess the problem is, though, if you got five players to agree with it, you're going to have to get every single other player in the locker room to agree with it. I think that's the problem is how many players do you feature? I mean, I know Formula One does it unbelievably well also. Um, if you haven't seen, I think it's, is it Drive to Succeed or Race? I can't remember the, Drive yeah. to Survive is the yeah. is the Formula One, does the same thing, follows a bunch of the drivers and, you know, but like anything, tennis players aren't contracted to an organization, not contracted to the tour where all these other sports are. But yeah, I mean, it would make, uh, I think it would be great to give people an understanding you hear it, people talk about it, but actually to see it is different. Yeah. I think when it's visually in front of you, cut together, the ups and downs, the trials, the tribulations, the travel, yeah, I think it's different when you can visually see it rather than being told it also. Absolutely. Uh, no doubt about that. We talked a bit of golf last week, Grothy, with a comparison with tennis. Now, over the weekend, I did notice that Golf Australia have sent out a reimagined schedule. So the way forward for Australian golf, looking to recapture their golden years with a, an October to March Full swing tour, a calendar with the, the crowning of the Order of Merit winner in March. Anyone who's been listening to this show knows what you put up on our show back on April 13th. That maybe tennis looks into the golf model. Doesn't have to do it exactly that way, but maybe looks at that as a way of uh, allowing players to make more money from the game. But the more that sort of sticks out on paper to me, what golf are doing... And we'll have a chat to Wally Masua, who's going to be our special guest uh, director of performance after the first break. But... You would just love to see tennis be able to have that same capacity domestically to help our our younger players, the juniors transitioning up, and then those who are you know lower ranked to really just get a financial footing. Yeah, I think it's smart what golf has done here in Australia as well. Made a calendar or a schedule that fits into you know a European winter, gives players an opportunity to maybe come back home, get their card, then go off if they if they do do well. But also, I think the ability for them to co-sanction events. Um, with the European Tour, maybe build a couple of their events up. But you, know, you want to create opportunities, playing opportunities for, for players here in tennis in Australia. And yeah, it's, it's still going to remain the question is how does that all change out of this? We'll have a chat to Wally after the break. US Open, French Open, just to give you an update. Obviously, Not uh, some more discussion on this across the weekend. The USTA now considering various changes 
Sam, to allow it to hold the US Open, including playing with no spectators. And we've been saying here the last few weeks, uh, Mike Dass, their CEO, they were adamant, fairly adamant, uh, 99% they weren't going to play in front of no spectators. But two months ago, this is a quote from the USTA executive, uh, Lou Scher, two months ago it just didn't feel like you could have a no-fan scenario and have it be what we think of at the US Open. As we've gone forward, I'm coming around to recognising what an achievement it would be to play. We have 850,000 fans who attend, but we've got hundreds of millions of fans who still watch the Open around the world and will never step foot on the grounds. This Grand Slam event is still four months away, but a decision likely to be made in the next few weeks because extensive preparations are required. Yeah, I, I think also, I know, for example, World Team Tennis, which I'm involved in the US, they're making deals with the White House, with the US government to try to bring players in, uh, in discussions with how they can do that. I think if they yep. can get things going and play out of one venue and bring all these players in from internationally, maybe it gives the US Open a little bit of hope that they can do the same. But, uh, I mean, we're talking about maybe having five people over for dinner this week. How are we going to get 500 athletes into New York to play a tournament? I, just, yeah, I just still can't see it inconceivable at the moment. Just wanted to play before the break, long-time player agent uh, Max Eisenbart, who obviously has been on the scene for about 20 years, managing pro players, legends, uh, juniors coming through. Uh, speaking to US tennis broadcaster, John Wertheim. I suspect you've heard some of the same creative solutions that I have. Maybe we don't have doubles. Maybe we don't have mixed doubles. Maybe if there are no fans, we can use all of the grounds. Uh, I even heard that at the US Open, if there are no fans, the players could each use one of the corporate suites is a locker room. Are you skeptical of these creative solutions or there's some ways around some of this? Skeptical. I just, I mean, you know, one thing is, you know, all the tours have done an amazing job. I got to tell you, the leadership, um, especially on the ATP tour, I'm a big believer in, in, in those two guys and everybody pulling in the same direction, you know, minus the French Open, but really the sports really pulled in the same direction. And I've seen so much work, dedication of, of trying to salvage the year and tournaments moving into later dates. And I've seen it all. I've seen it on paper and it looks amazing. And if, if we do get that window, the players and the tennis fans are going to be really pleasantly surprised on how much work the tours have done as planned, you know, A, B, C, D and E. Right. I just don't think we get there, man. And and I and I hope I'm wrong. You know, I, I saw the other day where a country like Argentina is closing mm -hmm. their borders in and out until September. So how if you have a players that are in Argentina, the U.S. Open start, you know, how does that happen? I just don't see it. I mean, it's, it's funny because in some ways tennis is so poorly positioned being such a global sport. So there he is, Max Eisenbud, the player agent, having uh, a chat regarding uh, the two. And I think we're probably all just about all in uh, Max's corner in terms of probably no tennis. We're going to find out in the next month. We're going to take a break. Wally Masua coming up next here on the first serve. Thanks to Top Agents Real Estate. If you're looking to buy, rent, sell or have their property investment managed, make contact with David and his team. They're back in the office tomorrow, 9558 4599. Head to their website, top-agents.com.au and you can follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Back with more on the first serve. The first serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back to The First Serve. Great to be with you on a Monday night. Brett Phillips alongside Sam Groth. Keep an eye on our website, thefirstserve.com.au. Uh, plenty of content, all our past shows that Grothy and I do. Our podcasts, uh, Crunching the Numbers and Aussies Only, going very nicely. Great to catch up with James Duckworth for an extended chat last week. So you can check all that out, all our news content, The First Serve 
www.tennisrallying.com.au. Grothy, Wally Masur in just a moment. But we've been talking about tennis rallying together for player relief. So they announced that last Tuesday, the governing bodies of World Tennis coming together to raise in excess of $6 million US to create a player relief program aimed at supporting players who are particularly affected by the ongoing uh, impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. But there's sort of still a bit to be sorted out, isn't there? There's maybe a few disgruntled players who have been saying on social media that this is taking uh, far longer and we need some money in our bank accounts and there's obviously criteria that players are going to meet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always going to be discussion getting both tours on the same page. Someone's going to miss out on getting paid. Not everyone's going to be happy, I guess. And I think the big thing that the players also forget is there's a whole industry, as hard as it is, and the players drive a lot of it. There's all the coaches, there's all the administrators, there's a lot of people affected by this as well. So, you know, the players aren't the only ones in this. You know, we, everyone in the in the tennis industry, I feel like, is sort of in this together. Absolutely. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. if you want to give us a call or on the text, 0433981116. Wally Masur in uh, just a moment. Promising young South Australian coming up a little bit later. In fact, he's the number one ranked 15-year-old junior. We actually uh, spoke to and Cooper White. A lot of good juniors out there, Grothy, who are trying to forge a way. Yeah, they certainly are. And I think it be interesting to see how, how some of the younger players are holding out. We hear a lot about the professional side of things, but... You know, a player who loses a year out of their development, a year out of competition, you know, do they focus on school for this year? Does it does it make them change their scenario a little bit? Who knows? Big professional review going on at Tennis Australia at the moment. Tell us more, Sam. No, I'm I'll just I would like on. Wally to tell us a little bit more. Obviously, there's a lot of changes through this COVID nineteen crisis, and yeah, there's been a, a professional review. Obviously, Wally, what's his title? Director of Performance. So he'll Correct. this directly comes under his. I guess it's what he's in charge of, really. And he's had so many different roles in tennis for a long time. Obviously, played for a long time. He um, ran the National Academy in Sydney. He was Davis Cup captain. Now he's taken over this director of performance role. And I'm interested to see his take because with all the roles that he's had, I'm not sure he's going to be the most popular man in Australian tennis at the moment. And he joins us right now, <laughs> Sam. Wally, Good timing. great to have you on the first serve. Hey, guys. How are you? And look, um, I'm actually being demoted. I'm, de- I'm sort of head of professional tennis at the moment. But, of course, a lot of these changes directly impact some of our players. So, yeah, you're right. Look, we've... Um, We've done a hell of a lot for them over the years, rolled out a lot of opportunities and, um, you know, potential for them to maximise their ability. Slightly different philosophical lens coming and, uh, yeah, a few of the players obviously have their views. Yeah, they certainly will, Well, and I'm glad you jumped on right when I was I was giving you a little whack. Obviously, we've had a good relationship for a long time and dealt with each other in a lot of roles, but can you talk us through a little bit of this performance review and what's come out of it, I guess, in the professional side of things? Yeah, I, look, just to give you a bit of background, I suppose from a... Um, there's 3,700 affiliated private coaches in Australia. So certainly at the, uh, at the younger space, when you're talking talent, you know, kids 10 to 15, the private sector always felt a little bit disenfranchised because it was quite a centralised model. And Tennis Australia were fairly hands-on in that age group. So the idea is, is to um, you know, throw a lot of that uh, development back at the talent stage, back to the private sector. So that's a philosophical shift. Uh, Tennis Australia will certainly invest heavily in players between the age of 15 to 23, and that's the idea behind the, um, you know, centralising everything at the Brisbane Academy. And, Grothy, you'd be very familiar with the old AIS model out of Canberra, and this is probably pretty similar, a residential model, the best players in Australia between the ages of 15 to 23 set up in Brisbane and, uh, you know, coach-driven programs as well as funding. And then the idea beyond that, if you've kind of simplified is philosophically 
to try to get to a point where we're enabling the players or facilitating the players to start to make more of their own decisions and invest more in their own programs 24 and above. But look, Tennis Australia will still be involved because tough road to get inside top 100. We recognise that. So players, it's not like we're going to cut them off the knees at 23. We certainly need to support them. But we'll be trying to direct them more to making some more of their own decisions and and having a bit more leadership in their own programs as opposed to more of a a kind of a a cradle-to-grave scenario that's been going on for a while now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Wally, you and I have discussed that quite a bit over time about players building this as a career, as a business, and understanding what their tennis journey is. And and it is a career, it's a job. But do you get the feeling that, and obviously I was a part of that AIS system where it was up to the age of 23, but... Obviously, in any review, there's going to be players that are disgruntled. You mentioned that. But the players that are going to be outside the age of 23 are going to be the profile players, and they're probably the ones that are going to have the biggest public voice. Is that where, or do you think that'll affect the way Tennis Australia goes about it, or the perception of what Tennis Australia is doing? Yeah, possibly. Look, and um, yeah, those players have certainly got a voice, and these days everyone's got a voice, haven't they, with the social media platforms. But I think, and look, I've been having conversations with players over the last few days too. What is still available to them is this sort of, and that's what I've been trying to remind them too, what is available to these players as funding, including funding, because some of them certainly need a little bit of help just to kind of kickstart or, or get them over the edge into the top 100 where they can be self-sustaining. They can walk into that academy at any time and get the red carpet treatment. And look, you know, Ash and Johnny Millman certainly take advantage of what's on offer in Brisbane. They have access to triple SM support, so physios and S&C. And obviously, if you look at the resourcing that we put around Davis Cup and Fed Cup, so it's Alicia Mollick and uh, Nicole Pratt in the Fed Cup and certainly Leighton, Jamin Crabb, Tony Roach in the Davis Cup. And, you know, that's real mentoring and guidance and support throughout the course of the year. Even though Davis Cup is a truncated uh, competition now, it's down to a couple of weeks maximum. So you've got to try to remind them, too, of all the things that Tennis Australia are doing for them at this point. But we're just going to kind of get away from the idea that we're going to directly coach players, um, you know, 24, 25 and above. Yeah, I mean, Brett, we spoke about this when it first came on the radar about going back to this private sector and bringing in private coaches again and a centralised base for that older sort of group based out of Brisbane, obviously better weather up there, great facilities around with Pat Raft Arena and everything going on there. But I guess my question also would be, Wally, with moving everyone or the the older uh, group of players into one space, how does that affect, I guess, the coaches who are also employed in that Tennis Australia environment? Is, is there going to be a lot of change, obviously, not just for the players, but for that coaching setup also? Yeah, I think the coaching setup will really be um, predicated by the head coach um, and his lens on it and how he's certainly going to have a big in, a big impact and a big say on how he wants to create his team. You know, And as we know, Grothy, you know, head coaches certainly have coaches that are loyal to them and coaches that they believe in. So, that, yeah, there could be a little bit of a shift in that, but there still will be a lot of opportunity for some of the coaches to apply for those roles. Um, Grothy, I think, too, like, you, you, realistically, not all of those uh, touring coaches will need to be based in Brisbane because we always have parallel pathways. So the, the suggested uh, opportunity is to head to Brisbane if a player doesn't, and let's use Nick Kyrgios, let's use uh, Alexi Popperin and Alex Diminar, you know, even Pat Cash, when I went to the AIS, Cashy didn't want to go to the AIS. So there'll always be a parallel program and parallel funding for players that don't want to avail themselves of the Brisbane opportunity. But I think if Brisbane does it really well and they offer a really good product and a really good opportunity and a, re- a really good training base, 
you know, we're kind of hopeful that the players will see that as their pathway, but we're certainly not going to exclude players in that 15 to 23 space who don't want to be a part of that. And let's face it, Grothy, as you and I well know, I mentioned a couple of names there, some of the very best players are the most idiosyncratic and they like to do things their way. So we're well aware of that too. Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion. Wally Masura, our special guest from uh, Tennis Australia uh, tonight and, of course, a long resume for Wally uh, playing and then uh, post being involved in the game and obviously commentating as well. Sam and I, Wally, have been having this sort of eight-week discussion. I, I think this hiatus has given us all a chance to just have a look at the game globally. How's it positioned? How can it benefit greater? We've talked about in Australia. Is there the possibility that we can get maybe a bigger domestic scene here outside of the summer of tennis. Can you shed any light on the short term of that, considering that we all probably think there's likely to be no international tennis in the back six months of the year? That may change in a month, who knows? What can that look like domestically? But what about long term of that to maybe assist players on the path? And Grothy brought up, you know, the golf model and the way they do things a few weeks ago on the show. Sports don't like to copycat each other, but is there some merit in that? I mean, how do you sort of see the bigger picture of the game and, and more players trying to earn a living out of the sport? Yeah, look, I think that that's a great point. And it sort of really brought it into focus, hasn't it? Because we sort of have a domestic circuit from September through to kind of February 1, the day the Australian Open finishes. Um, you know, culminating in that that January series of international events. But I think, you know, I just got off a phone call uh, five minutes before speaking to you guys. So they are looking at a return to tennis domestically. So there's been that sort of city challenge or state of origin style of event proposed in Australian closed championships, whereby everybody locally can play a competition that feeds into a state competition, that feeds into a national competition. So it's kind of like Australia getting to an Australian closed championships. And obviously, when you get to the very pointy end, you drop in the very best pros. But um, the idea is that it sort of starts broadly and reaches this narrow point. So we're definitely discussing that. Um, the other thing, too, of course, is tennis is always driven by a few personalities, whether that be internationally or domestically. So we're certainly going to have to engage Nick, John Millman, Ash Barty, to try to determine you know, how they see it, too, and have input from them. You know, What events do they want to be involved in? And how can we use them to kind of grow some sort of domestic competition? Because I agree with you. I think international travel is pretty much going to be the last thing that comes back. And, you know, we're even concerned about the Australian Open in 2021, how that looks, you know, because obviously there's no fans there, for example. It's a very different funding model for Tennis Australia going forward. So, yeah, we've got some really big decisions to make. And interesting to see how we can highlight domestic tennis and, you know, what interest is there from... Channel 9 or the networks, um, obviously we've got a relationship with Channel 9, you know, what is the appetite for it in, in, in showing and bring it to the public maybe in a slightly different way? Do you think sometimes the players, they miss, I guess, the bigger picture when, when they see a change like the one going on currently with performance, but then we talk about a domestic competition and how we can engage some of these stars, I guess, from Australian tennis, do you think the players miss the bigger picture when it comes to maybe using them in promotional things where they're being moved out of one space in terms of support, but there's this whole idea of putting a broader domestic circuit in where they can promote themselves, possibly engage marketing agreements through that period? Do you think sometimes there's a very short-term focus with the players? Grothy, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. So if you go back to the amateur tennis days, and obviously Jack Kramer pinched the very best players in the world and offered them professional contracts. And, you know, that led to the Jack Kramer professional tour. So, you know, Ken Rose, all as soon as he'd won, you know, a couple of grand slams, bang, they signed him up. Signed Lou Hode, uh, Pancho Gonzalez, and, uh, you know, the pro circuit 
in the 1950s was up and running. So the players realised that getting the very best players involved in the pro circuit was only going to enhance it. So Ken Rosewell actually guaranteed Lou Hode. He was part guarantor of Lou Hode's contract to turn professional. So kind of imagine that happening in today's world where you know, the players would actually give or guarantee their own money to get another player involved in a circuit because they felt like that was going to grow the actual professional circuit, grow interest in it, and create a better competition. So your question, Grothy, I think is along those lines. I think the players right now, because we're kind of looking at, you kind of think of world sports, so no fans potentially for a while. Uh, sponsors, you know, the world economy is hurting, so sponsors are going to be a very different look, TV broadcast. Maybe they don't want to pay as much dollars. So it's a very different environment, isn't it? And I sort of think, will the players maybe appreciate what they've had in the past, appreciate the fans and the sponsors and the tournament organisers and everything that goes into putting a tournament together? Will they appreciate that maybe they have a bit of a responsibility to grow the game from this point when it starts up again? So even talking around a domestic competition, you know, I just wonder what the players' appetite for it is because they may have to give a little of themselves to get a little to build that domestic competition. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation in the next few months. Yeah, Beppe, I also wonder, we obviously sit here at SEN, a very heavily football-dominated station, cover a wide variety of sports. We're doing a lot of racing on here at the moment, but a bit of everything on, on the SEN networks. You just wonder whether the month of January, everyone loves tennis. Everyone engages in it fully. It's the only sport, with cricket as well, but everyone so engages in that Australian Open period. Would sports fans follow tennis more widely throughout the year if there was a domestic competition where they got to know some of the players a little bit better? Would they then follow that more throughout the year? I guess, you know, is that a way to grow the sport with the wide? And I'd love to hear what the listeners think too. If yeah. there was a domestic competition, would they engage in tennis more readily for the rest of the, the season going forward? I think it's something we'll canvas, Grothy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I was going to say it's a really good point, isn't it? We had, you know, the ATL, the Asian Tennis League, where we had sort of competition around the country and the pros would come back and play, you know, for the various cities. And I remember once going out to watch Jordan Thompson play, who was on the cusp of being top 100. And I sort of thought, you know, here, here is this guy that's playing really good tennis. And the crowd that showed up, yeah, it was really minimal. So it was obvious that it, there's almost an education process that has to happen. And we need to put kind of exciting events that, um, you know, maybe have a point of difference. Maybe City v City is that where it becomes a well, I think you've a got to create driver. a broadcast perspective too, because people have got to be able to not just go there. They've got to be able to engage whether it's, through TV or streaming, or I think you've got to create something that people, if they can't get to the tennis match, they've got to be able to consume it in other ways also. Yeah, and I think, you know, you talk about footy. So, you know, I follow the footy up here in Sydney. So it's tribal. You follow your team and the players come and go, but you follow your team. And certainly, you know, some fans might follow a superstar as they track across different teams. But that's kind of the problem in tennis, an individual sport. You know, someone from Sydney's playing in Mexico City. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little hard to get traction. But if we can create that kind of interest, as you suggest, Grothy, and, you know, there's a bit of a marketing um, aspect to it and a broadcast aspect to it where you're actually highlighting that, you know, a player that's 110 in the world, it's pretty damn good. You know, and they are playing awfully good tennis. And these days, I would suggest if you're ranked, you know, anywhere up to 250, 350, you're actually playing really good tennis. But it's hard the way that tennis is consumed and the way that we market tennis for people to see that as a really valid offering sometimes. Wally, we will continue this conversation uh, part two at some other time. We've got to get to a break, but really appreciate your insights. There's a lot going on, a lot to 
work on. I suppose this uh, hiatus from week-to-week competition has given us all a chance to breathe and really take a good look at the game. Always appreciate your time and your insights here on the first serve. And look, just quickly, uh, look, I am under a bit of pressure and I probably need someone with Grothy's size help me out you've got a few spare weekends could you come up to Sydney and just help me out a bit mate with some I, of these I need some, I need some extra work thanks well yeah. I'll, uh, I'll wait your call you won't be yeah. sitting at the All back right, end thanks. of the plane though Wally he likes 1A 1A or 1B no, not one the wall's there two's great <laughs> thank you Wally talk soon thank you Wally Masua head of uh, professional tennis at Tennis Australia Yarra Tennis Coaching Melbourne's award winning coaching program is at Eaglemont 20 teams junior and adult programs private lessons Shane and the crew, they'll be back on court before we know it. Yarratennis.com.au, you're listening to The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Very nice to be here on a Monday night. Brett Phillips alongside Sam Groth. Thanks to our good friends at Starting From Scratch. They offer their premium glass repair. They specialise in the removal of window scratches, bringing it back to its former glory, whether it's those scratches on the sliding door that your pet dog has caused or the local milk bar that's been graffitied. I went past a milk bar on the weekends. Good to see the old milk bar still up and running. They can remove it. Startingfromscratched.com.au From Wally Masua, experienced campaigner, Grothy, to a young man who's just on the early part of his tennis journey his first live radio interview tonight now grothy before i introduce him i just hope he shows a little bit more humility than what you did when you were interviewed back in 2013 yeah i got the jump on him early and made a good start and i think that really put pressure on him you know setting a break and especially when i'm i'm holding quite easily i think it uh, it starts to get to guys and it certainly got to him a little bit today i mean i served really well i mean until the last game i don't think he really got a chance in any of the games and then it sort of happened because i got maybe a little bit tight there trying to finish it off but like i said on the grass you're serving well for me and making balls from the back on the return games too you know guys get a little bit nervous especially knowing they can't really break so i've built everything what uh, everything i've done around my serve this week and it's worked really well he was struggling with it as well you know he was throwing in doubles so that's humble from me he, he was throwing in doubles at least anyone, i was getting the balls he caught anyone who knows me would say that was humble honestly i i think that that's that's nothing you should, yeah Oh, up at Mildura. Was... Remember that? Mildura 2013. You won I was on the, the grass. Uh, Anytime you put me on a grass. I reckon you put me on a grass court now and I'd play that well. It's the only surface so I could play. I hope though. young Eddie's been listening because um, we just want a little bit more humility out of uh, the interview tonight. But Edward Winter, people know him, his coach knows him as Eddie, is our top-ranked 15-year-old male in Australia in the ITF Junior Rankings. He resides in uh, beautiful Adelaide and he's been good enough to join us. Uh, can we call you Eddie? Yep, no worries. Thanks for I think that's, uh, that's less, uh, less official, mate. I'm sure Everyone uh, probably calls you that. Hey, how you been going over there in Adelaide? Because unlike Melbourne, you've actually been able to sort of keep training, Eddie. Uh, there's been a little bit more relaxed in terms of the tennis courts and the usage. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, my training schedule hasn't tra- changed too much. Been doing a lot with my private coach, doing 12 months with my brother, Sam Wall, and then doing a fair bit with my fitness coach, Daniel Bubris. So I've really been able to do a lot in sort of smaller numbers. I don't normally train larger groups of people. But yeah, been able to get a bit of variety into my training at the moment, which has been really good. Sounds like you've got a pretty good setup over there. Obviously, Daniel Rubris, he worked with us in our Davis Cup setup for quite a long time. He's gone back, he's working with the Poirier Football Club now, but you were overseas playing international tournaments when all of this shut down. How have you coped with isolation? And you say you've been able to uh, you know, keep your training going a little bit, but are you, are you missing being out there competing? Yeah, definitely. Um Missing all the tournaments, I mean, that's one of the, my favourite parts of tennis. Yeah, obviously I've been trying to keep up as much match play as I can. I've been hitting with a few guys down here locally, uh, playing some sets wherever I can. But yeah, no, coping all right at the moment. Just trying to keep working as hard as I can. So 
when the first tournament comes back, I'm, yeah, fitter than ever and ready to go. Yeah, this sport is truly global, even as a 15-year-old. I mean, you're competing in Costa Rica, Santo Domenico. Who was the, the fellow Grothy? Victor Estrella Burgos, who put... No, he was uh, from the Dominican the, Republic. Yeah, isn't that the capital, Santo oh, Domenico? I think it is. Uh, is that right, Eddie? Yeah, is that where you went to, the Dominican Republic? Yeah, Santo Domenico is the capital of Dominican Well, Victor, Republic, he'd, have yeah. a, he'd have a statue, uh, Victor Estrella Burgos, who did some of his finest work in his 30s. It's a, it's a great story. But you were over there. You went to Las Vegas as well. I mean, just in your early travels, I mean, Grothy's done a uh, montage of all the, the great and worst places he's been to around the world. What's, uh, what's the number one spot you've been to and what's the worst? Vegas had to be up there. I mean, obviously, didn't get to play a tournament there, unfortunately, because it got cancelled. But that was a pretty cool place that we got... We got to look around there for a couple of days. The worst. I mean, I've been pretty fortunate to travel to some nice countries. Just wait. It'll get worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've been to Japan a bit and across Europe, uh, Mm. you know, around the place in America. Uh, So I've been pretty fortunate, but I'm sure maybe a couple of challenges or some futures in some countries around the world might not be as nice. You clearly bypassed uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. They're grothies. I continue to bypass those. I continue to bypass those if I could. Eddie, 15 (laughs) years of age, though, number one player in the country. Do Do you feel any expectation with that? Obviously, We've got such a rich history here of tennis in Australia. Do you, do you feel any pressure with being the best in the country? Look, I mean, I try not to focus too much on that and the rankings. Basically, if I just keep working as hard as I can and keep training from the way I'm going, hopefully that stuff takes care of itself normally. Yeah, obviously, Australia's got a great history in tennis. Hopefully, one day I can add to that. Yeah, sometimes I just try not to think about that, that stuff too much, but just keep going and keep enjoying it, basically, yeah. So, Eddie, you were named in a mock team for SA with respect to John Millman's State of Origin concept. I mean, that would be a great thrill, wouldn't it, to play with some of our current day contemporaries, maybe, you know, some legends, you know, a Leighton or whoever else might uh, be able to get involved. Uh, just for some background, you also experienced your first ATP event, which was a raging success. Grothy was they're doing commentary in Adelaide at Memorial Drive. You actually lost to the man with the highest ball toss I've ever seen, Federica Delbonis in <laughs> Qualies, and you experienced the Australian Open juniors. So just the last sort of six months, you've had some pretty good exposure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, Australian Open and Adelaide International, two of the best experiences of my life. Obviously, the match at Adelaide International, the scoreline probably didn't go my way but I still felt like it was a really competitive match and I gave my best it was really eye-opening to see that how if I can keep working as hard as I can how I can get to that level one day tell you what Eddie we're going to squeeze in a little break you get stuck in a little bit more of the mashed potato for dinner we're going to come back Grothy has got one more we're going to slip in our last break we'll come back with Edward Winter as our special guest tonight our top ranked 15 year old male thanks to 100 words a network of active local communities with the aim of improving men's mental health and reducing male suicides check out their great work at 100 words the First Serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back to The First Serve. We're always racing to the finish line. Brett Phillips and Sam Groth, Edward Winter, the number one ranked 15-year-old male in Australia in the ITF Junior Rankings. He's known to us as Eddie. Grothy, you've got one before we close tonight. I do. Eddie, we had the chance to speak to Wally Masur right before you, obviously, head of performance at Tennis Australia. Spoke about this new pro structure moving sort of 15 to 23-year-olds up to Brisbane. Does that become your next step? Is that an option? Are you going to look to transfer yourself up there to Queensland? Yeah, look, obviously, um, I've heard a lot about that. That's a lot of the talk at the moment. Honestly, we haven't got too many details to decide on a real decision. Obviously, if they can have the best juniors and senior players, 15 to 23, from around Australia, training in the one place, I mean, that sounds pretty good. But... 
yeah, unfortunately, we just don't have enough details or clarity on what it's going to look like. So we can't really make a decision right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, just one quick one for you. Uh, Jordan Thompson, Ollie Florin, Sam's favourite at the Swannies, loves the Swans. Cheer, cheer, the red and the white. You had a little conversation with them on, uh, which is that opportunity has been given to a lot of the Adelaide boys to have an online experience. What's just one quick thing you took out of those chats? Yeah, it's definitely about how much hard work you have to do to yep. really make it. Um, Got to keep going no matter what. Just always work hard every day. They really spoke well about their journeys, and yeah, it was really enjoyable. Good stuff. Hey, Eddie, we'll do it again, I promise you. Very nice. Yeah. Start live radio interview. Very, very humble. We love that. And uh, good luck. We'll uh, follow your journey. We'll speak again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. There's Eddie Winter. Thank you, Grothy. Thanks, mate. Don't be too humble. We'll talk to you next week, <laughs> 6 o'clock, next Monday night. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.